How could this be family reunification if the children didn't know who they were going to? In this episode, I sit down with HHS whistleblower Tara Rodas, a federal employee for two decades. She was among a number of people who answered a call from the Biden administration to help with the crisis at the border. Honestly, if I had not seen this with my own eyes, I could not believe that the U.S. government is taking a child from the border, they're safe with us, and then just simply sending them on buses and planes within 10 to 14 days to people who are unvetted. Who's checking their backgrounds? No one. Tonight, she breaks down the red flags she noticed, why she decided to blow the whistle on HHS, and what steps are needed to fix the system. Cocaine can be sold one time, but a child can be sold over and over again, multiple times a day, year after year. They're making millions of dollars off of the lives of the children. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Tara Rodas, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Jan, thank you so much for having me on to talk about government-sponsored, taxpayer-funded child trafficking. I appreciate it. When you say those words, it's really kind of hard to comprehend. I watched your testimony in Congress uh, not a couple of months ago, and it blew my mind. And <laughs> How did you come to discover the beginnings even of what you just said? Sure, sure. So I'm a federal employee. I've been a federal employee for more than 20 years, and 17 of those years have been in the inspector general community. And the IG, for those people who know, combats fraud, waste, and abuse in government programs. Now today, I'm just talking to you as an average citizen, right, um, who witnessed through a detail at the Department of Health and Human Services, trafficking. And so I volunteered to help. You may recall that the Biden administration at the beginning of 2021 made a call to all federal employees to come help with the crisis at the border. And specifically, they needed federal employees who were vetted to work with the children and place those children with sponsors here in the United States. And so I thought, wow, what an incredible service that I could do by helping reunite children with their families. And so that's what I did. And so what was your work before this? Okay, so I'm a trainer. And so I train adults on all kinds of different things, people within the inspector general community, on how to do their jobs better and so that we can be the best at combating fraud, waste, and abuse. No, and that, I mean, that's fascinating because, you know, I, I, of course, I'm a bit familiar with your story as well, but you are very good, obviously, to having done this and taught it at getting into the nitty gritty of things. And you see things that don't quite fit, right? Yes. That, that might tell a story that you need to discover. Right. Yes. And of course, being aware, I think most people know there's fraud, waste and abuse in the government. Most people know that. But when you're actually working in a particular program, sometimes you might not realize what fraud in that program might lead to, what waste or abuse in that program could eventually lead to later down the line. And so when everybody just believed we were reuniting children with families, I mean, that is a great mission. What better mission? That's why I volunteered to do that, right? 
And with my husband being from El Salvador, being a Spanish speaker, I thought I would be able to help, you know, be that smiling, welcoming face to the children when they came. I just had no idea that the children didn't know who they were going to. Well, so, okay, wow, right? And we know, for example, there's a statistic out there right now that 85,000 children are unaccounted for. So, you know, this kind of speaks to, why, why don't you start by telling me, you know, what you, when did you first realize there was something amiss? Yeah, so it only took a couple of weeks working in case management, actually looking at the cases, and then seeing the faces of the children, seeing children crying, seeing the case managers distressed and, and saying, I don't understand. It seems like the child doesn't know the person who they're going to. And I remember thinking, what do you mean the child doesn't know the person who they're going to? And so that's when we, as the federal team, started looking into the contract case manager's work. And we were sort of like, double-checking what was happening. And I said, I want to see the ID of the person, and I want it to match this paperwork, which is where we're sending the child, what is happening. And then we had case managers with stress. We had a case manager who had to be hospitalized for stress because she felt so strongly that her child was being trafficked. So this is when I first realized that something was wrong. How could this be family reunification if the children didn't know who they were going to. So honestly, if I had not seen this with my own eyes, I, I simply could not believe. I could not believe that the U.S. government is taking a child from the border, taking this child into the care of the government. We have the child. They're safe with us. And then just simply sending them on buses and planes within 10 to 14 days to people who are unvetted, to homes that have not been seen, to sponsors who have not been seen. It doesn't, it doesn't pass the common sense test to me. So how prevalent is this? Because obviously some children are actually being reunited with families, right? And this is such a fraught topic, right? Like even as we're talking about it, I find it, you know, trying to difficult, difficult to navigate what's actually happened. Even the term trafficking, right? What does that actually mean? Are you saying they're, they're willfully wanting to put people in to be used? Or are you saying that they just happen to end up in that sort of way and the, and the government knows? Or what, what do you actually mean, right? Yes. So there's a big difference, and I didn't know this before going on this mission, but there's a big difference between smuggling and trafficking. They're two different things. So smuggling simply means moving the child. So you're actually moving the child from one location to the other. You're moving the child. Trafficking involves three things, force, fraud, or coercion. So there has to be this luring element. There has to be deception, and there has to be a reason. So that would mean they're, they're using this deception for a purpose. That purpose could be labor trafficking. It could be sex. It could be um, organ harvesting. It could be that they're just trying to make money off of the children. And it could be with them being in debt bondage to pay their debts back. So there's all sorts of reasons. But trafficking means that force, fraud, or coercion was used 
for a purpose, like labor, sex, and other unspeakable things. So let me get back to that question. Do you have a sense of how prevalent children being reunited with people that they don't know, <laughs> even not reunited, people being united with people who they simply don't know? That would be the first question. And the second question is, is that always in a fraudulent way that that happens? Well, so I can talk about the 8,314 cases that went through the Pomona Fairplex, right? And I can also point to other stories that have been done and Senate reports and congressional testimony. So right now, anybody could go to the HHS website and they can see the percentage of children that go to what's called a Category 3 sponsor, meaning it's completely unknown to the child and unrelated. So it's an unrelated sponsor. But that data alone doesn't tell the story because on our site we witnessed many cases of people submitting fraudulent documentation in an attempt to sponsor children. So if you can imagine we have a child that we're about to send to someone based on photographs of birth certificates that have been sent to us. So no one sees the sponsor. No one sees the home of the sponsor. If the sponsor claims this is my sister, then that's how we treat the case. Okay, we're sending this female, this 15-year-old girl, to her 20-something-year-old brother. Only to find out later, this is one of the cases on our site, is that the documents that he sent actually were a birth certificate for a brother and a sister, just not the two of them. So he sends in these documentation, this documentation, and it's not his birth certificate. It's not her birth certificate. And we believe they're brother and sister. But next thing we see, he's posted him and his supposed sister all snuggled up together. He posts another picture of the two of them like that. And then the third picture is just her all by herself. She's completely made up. Her shirt is unbuttoned. And it's clear she's for sale. So just because the data says only so many percentage are going to people they don't know, there's a lot more behind the data. Anybody can say they're a brother or a sister or a parent or an aunt or an uncle. Does, is no one actually checking who the sponsors are? I mean, this, forgive me for asking these questions. Well, that's what I said in the congressional hearing that it was baffling to me. That's, it is stunning to me that no one is holding the sponsor accountable. HHS does not want to hold the sponsor accountable. But this is the simple fix. The challenge is sponsors don't have legal presence. So over 95% of sponsors have no legal presence, meaning they're not a legal permanent resident. They don't have a work permit to be here. They're here under false pretenses. So the government does not want, or at least HHS does not want anyone going after their sponsors or to look into their sponsors, which is unacceptable. If we're sending a child to any person, that person should be responsible for the safety of the child, the well-being of the child, for ensuring that the child gets enrolled to, into school.
That person is also supposed to be responsible for taking the child to their immigration court hearings. Now, if a person is here under illegal pretext, they probably themselves don't know the system. Why are we then giving them a vulnerable child to be responsible for getting them through their immigration process? It doesn't really make sense. Just it, it makes me think again how the, the, the incentive structures here are all upside down. Yes, the incentive structures, and that's, that is part of the problem, is that we're incentivizing people to get children and they're able to abuse them more easily now because of the processes we have in place. And we're incentivizing the traffickers because we're actually delivering the child directly to their front door. So the United States government is paying for the flights and the bus tickets to deliver these children to people who view children as assets. I think that was the hardest thing for me to understand is how can a human being look at a child as an asset? But they do. They view them as commodities and assets to be put to work. It's why we're seeing in news, news all across the country of rampant labor trafficking of these children. They're in debt bondage. They have to pay their debts back. And the traffickers are making money. So, you know, cocaine can be sold one time. But a child can be sold over and over again, multiple times a day, week after week, year after year. They're making millions of dollars off of the lives of the children. So you started seeing things within a couple of weeks of getting on the job. So tell me about some of your attempts to disclose it and what happened. Right. So in the very beginning with the first case that we put forward as what we called suspicious sponsor activity, people seemed like they were, they were excited that we brought this information to them. And then we found the next case because we could see what the red flags were. So in that very first case, we identified that this one individual had been a household member at actually six addresses and over a period of time had started accumulating children from different sites. So we now knew, okay, we need to look for people who are sponsoring multiple children. We need to look for people who are sponsoring at the same address. We need to look for, you know, certain things. So we started to become more efficient at finding these cases. And we found another very high-level case in Austin, Texas. And so everybody seemed, in the beginning, as I'm putting these cases forward, and remember, this is in June of 2021, so I started putting all these cases forward. I was talking to law enforcement by July. So we were putting these cases forward. And it seemed like they were going to be doing something about it. But one day, after we identified this big case in Austin, um, one of the case managers comes running up to me and she says, Tara, but we're sending another place to Austin. I'm like, what do you mean? We've already identified that as a bad address where we shouldn't be sending people. And so I went running down to the command center, which is where the executives were. And I said, you know, I need to let you know that we have on a manifest here that this child is going to a place that we've already identified as trafficking. You know, I need to make sure that you understand. And they're like, Tara, 
you do understand that we only keep or we only get sued if we keep kids in care too long. We don't get sued by traffickers. And then she leaned in and she said, we don't get sued by traffickers. Are we clear? So at that point, I knew what their position was, is that in the end, it was about meeting the numbers, getting the children moved, and it was speed over safety. And it was a horrifying revelation. How did you deal with that? I, I'm not ashamed to say I cried a lot of che- uh, tears, you know, along with case managers. You know, when case managers realized that their kid was being sent somewhere that they had recommended they not go, it's a very traumatic thing. I've, personally, I've never been that close to darkness. It was, a very, it was very sobering to be looking into the faces of these children. To, I've heard children scream for their parents. You know, I've looked into the faces of kids who, even as a teen, they've never been to school. They can't read. They can't write. Children who cannot even speak Spanish. So we have some children from Guatemala, and they speak a Mayan dialect. So they can't speak Spanish at all. And so they can't speak Spanish and ask for help. They can't ask for help in English. They literally become captives of their sponsors. This was a horrible, horrible time. Yeah. Okay. Well, so what happened next? So after I realized that they were going to send the kids because their mandate was speed over safety, we did everything in our power to write up as much as we could about every single case. You know, we were educating all of the case managers. We had over 200 case managers working. We said, look, if you get any of these identifiers, let us know. We started teaching the case managers how to write up the cases. So there was documentation left behind. Right now, HHS has documentation in what's called SIRs, Significant Incident Reports, and SASIRs, which is Sexual Assault Significant Incident Reports. Our case managers learned to document, document, document. So we kept documenting, we kept sending cases forward, and then when we found the MS-13 related case, that's when things started to go a little bit haywire because that's something that HHS did not want the general public to find out about. They did not want people to know that there were bad actors, meaning people on the transnational organized crime watch list who were actually sponsoring the children. And so there was a brave whistleblower at DHS, came forward in August. We saw his disclosure. We passed it all around the site. And in two weeks, yeah, we we confirmed that what he blew the whistle on was absolutely true. And we had an MS-13 affiliated sponsor trying to get two children, one from our site and one from the Pomona Fairplex is where I was, so my site, and then one from the Fort Bliss emergency intake site in Texas. There's no way to blacklist some of these sponsors from ever getting a kid again once they've been identified? So... There is a way in the system that you can flag a sponsor. The challenge is, is how would you know to flag the sponsor? Because no one on the site is an investigator. None of, which is another stunning thing. HHS is not an investigative agency. 
So they don't have investigators looking at the cases, which you would think that if you're sending a child to someone's home, that you would want an investigator looking into that, someone at least who knows there's fraud in the system, someone who's experienced in working with crimes against children. This would just make sense, but they don't have anyone doing that. So in the, this particular case of the MS-13 actor who we found, the only way we knew was she actually sent us her adjudication paperwork. So she had served time in prison in El Salvador for her involvement with the gang. And there was no way we would have ever known that because no background check was required on her because she was a family member. I imagine your husband would have had some thoughts about this. Yes, my husband being from El Salvador was absolutely stunned because he knows what MS-13 does with children and with other people. We, he's not ashamed to say either you know, we cried a lot of tears. You know, he would come. I had one day off a week, and he would come to visit me, and we cried. And it's still, it's a very traumatic thing. You know, we, we had the privilege to see a screening of The Sound of Freedom uh, in Ohio before the movie actually hit the theaters, and we both just cried because what we were seeing on screen is exactly what I was witnessing and it's, it's just, it's unbelievable to me. Well, the film exposes something very interesting, which I think a lot of, and I didn't fully understand. I understand it a little bit because I've done a number of American Thought Leaders episodes about child trafficking and how it works. But you have this idea in your mind, even someone who's been looking into this for years, like myself, not an expert, but knows a bit, that, that there's actually women involved yes. in a major way. And that was, that. I think, one of the powerful things about the Sound of Freedom film is it shows that reality. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it kind of explains why and how it works be, precisely for the reason why you don't want to believe that. You don't want to accept it. Right, exactly. So in the case of Sound of Freedom, right, Miss Cartagena, she was the one who was sex trafficking the children. She was the one who was luring, right? She was giving the force, fraud, and the coercion to entice parents to let Miss Cartagena photograph their children, and then the children would dis disappear. And so that was the horror of the case I was working on because the MS-13 actor, she worked at a hotel. The children, the group that of children who came across they were in a group of 22 also led by a female smuggler and this female smuggler was going to be living only a mile and a half from this sponsor so we knew that the other kids were also involved in the gangs because they said so and one of the children their father was actually a high-level criminal actor in MS-13 Hollywood clique. And so when the Attorney General of El Salvador arrested him, it was like front-page news. So, yeah, very serious, serious criminal actors involved in murder, involved in all kinds of bad crimes, and were giving the United States government is using federal dollars to ship children to these people when these people should be arrested, deported, and put in the prison 
that the president of El Salvador, you know, Bukele has, which is how you deal with criminals. Because at its basic level, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm a fairly simple person, but at its basic level, a government needs to protect its citizens. And you can't protect your citizens if you're allowing high-level criminal element to control the population and to to give children to them for these sorts of crimes. It, it's really unthinkable. And again, all I can say is, had I not seen it with my own eyes, had I not seen the adjudication paperwork, had I not seen the attorney generals, you know, in El Salvador reporting on this crime, I don't, I don't think I could believe it. I just don't think I could believe it. Well, you know, one of the things... I'm always looking for silver linings and things. And this is a, it's truly unfathomable what you're describing. But, you know, I, you said there's no investigators, right, in the, on the space. But they, they happened into an investigator with another role, right, in you, because that's what you, that's what you train people to do, actually, isn't it? Well, I don't train people to be investigators per se, but I do train auditors, investigators, and evaluators on how to do certain parts of their job better, yes, yes, when they're training others to do their jobs, yes. It's very interesting. I, I've, a number of people that have come on to American Thought Leaders have been people who just get thrust into a very unexpected situation Yes. and faced with difficult moral questions and then decide to talk about it and try to make a difference at you know, I don't know, at significant personal cost in many cases. Yes, well, I'm very fortunate that I was in the inspector general community on loan because if not, I would, I would be fired. I mean, I was fired from this position. So they, when I came on board and they realized that I was very efficient at identifying the red flags, writing the reports, putting forward the information, training the other case managers on how to identify the fraud, write up the reports. You know, they started calling me CSI on the site. And I remember telling the person, I said, he was one of the highest ranking people on the site, the federal field specialist. And I said, that's very flattering. I said, but you do understand by calling me CSI, that should be a very serious indication to you that you need to call every law enforcement <laughs> agency and say, hey, people are taking advantage of my program. People have figured out ways to defraud this program. And the cost is going to be the lives of the children. So it was just a very unbelievable thing when I... I become the person who's the expert on identifying the fraud. They end up then elevating me to become the deputy in the case management room where we had all the case managers. And this, one of the silver linings was is they had me explain to people online how I was finding the fraud. And then I learned afterwards that at this high-level meeting, when they're, they were like, well, how are you identifying that? Please explain to us in detail because we want to help stop, you know, this particular fraud scheme from happening. And it was only afterwards when they asked me to review it that I realized I was talking to the office of the president, the U.S. Digital Service. So I had no idea who was on that call that day, but they did end up creating a nationwide guidance, field guidance that they sent out to say, look, 
you have to be aware of these two fraud schemes, and they were using address fraud and name fraud. So there is that silver lining, and the silver lining that I got to go before Congress and tell from the point of view of the children. You know, I had the privilege. It's also a heavy burden, but I had the privilege to be the voice for the kids. You know, it's... um. I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to tell Congress. I just hope that Congress takes action. Because while we're sitting here talking today, children are being sold for sex. And while we're sitting here, there are children getting off of an overnight shift. You know, they've been burned with chemicals. They haven't slept. They haven't eaten well. And this is unacceptable. We cannot allow these children to be put in modern-day slavery that's unacceptable in the United States of America. How, is, how does it work to follow up with these children? Presumably, it's not just you send the kid and you forget about it. Well, so what, what happens is after they send the child, they're literally transferring custody. So HHS has custody of the child, and then they give the custody to the sponsor. So the sponsor is fully responsible. That means that the sponsor never has to take a phone call again from HHS, ever. So HHS does what's called a 30-day follow-up call. So they'll call the home. Hi, how are you? How's the child doing? That's no guarantee that you're getting the real sponsor on the phone. No guarantee that they're giving you the real information on the child. Literally, once the child is out of the custody of HHS, there's there's no follow-up. And there's you know, and there's really no way for HHS to keep the kids because the the volume that's coming across is so huge, right? Is that I mean that's that's the reason they have so much pressure to keep moving them. Yes, exactly. So Jan, hundreds of thousands of children have come across the border into the care of HHS, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands have been sent out to sponsors, some of whom we know are criminals, they're traffickers, they're members of transnational criminal organizations involved in sex trafficking. And once they're gone, they're gone. HHS has no requirement to follow up with these people. And because they're not here legally either how are they being tracked who's checking their backgrounds no one and then you have the whistleblower from dhs saying these people are on the talk watch list meaning the transnational organized crime watch list and no one's going after them so it's very concerning and it's why i blew the whistle on hhs do you, are, have you met others like you who have found the same in other field sites? Or? So the one good thing is, is as a result of coming forward with Project Veritas and James O'Keefe, people saw that video and people did contact me. And I do know that there are people who have come forward. People have talked to prosecutors in various states. So it has sparked some action, but these people are afraid to come forward and put their face on camera for fear of the retaliation from their agency that they were detailed from. So let's just say you were working for DOJ. 
well, you don't want to come forward now because DOJ might fire you for telling the truth. So there are a lot of people who don't want to have their faces shown, but they are coming forward and talking with prosecutors and turning over data and information that we hope, we hope, because the goal, the goal is to rescue children, prosecute criminals, and reform this unaccompanied children program. It must be changed. So you've talked about these different fraud schemes that exist. You said there's basically there's two methods in general that are used. Give me an example of something that you actually saw in action. Okay, sure. Uh, so we had a trafficker in Austin, Texas, and this gentleman who is a citizen of Guatemala, he actually owns a coffee farm in Guatemala, and he has children working on his coffee farm in Guatemala. He's paying those children $2.50 a day to work on his coffee farm in Guatemala. And so he says, you know what? You're special. I'm going to pay you $6 an hour when you come to the United States. So if you come to the United States, you'll, I'll give you a place to live, and you're going to be able to make $6 an hour. And these children, when they're thinking $2.50 a day to $6 an hour, I'm going to be Elon Musk rich. I'm going to be able to take care of my family. I'm going to be able to look after my brothers and sisters. And so these children take this journey knowing they have a debt to pay. So when we find out at our site that we have one of them and that the Pecos site in Texas has three others, I said, hey, we need to interview all of these children separately. We can't have them contaminate, cross-contaminate the information. We have to be certain that what they're saying is their own story. So talked with all the case managers. They all interviewed the children again. All tell the same story. Yep, I was promised $6 an hour to come here. I was working for $2.50 a day. And the case manager said that all the children, you know, told the same story. And the one case manager, she said, Tara, I was so sad thinking that these children were going to be put to work. I said to the child who I was responsible for, I said, you know, what happens if you get to the United States and you meet a girl and you want to get married? And she said, Tara, she said, that little boy looked at me and said, oh, no, we cannot leave sponsor. This is a real case. These are real children going into these sorts of circumstances. The United States government cannot, cannot be complicit in this sort of activity. So, and this is this this reality has been around for a while. It's just it's just the scale of it has changed. Am I understand? Do I understand that right? Yes. Yeah. Because if we go back to 2014, they were trafficking children through the program then. So, under the Obama administration, a very high-level case in Marion, Ohio, they found boys who were living in these squalor conditions in a trailer. And they were being threatened. They were, had guns pointed at them. They said that they were going to kill their parents. The traffickers told them this. And they were working on an egg farm in Marion, Ohio. And Senator Portman, um, after these people were caught, arrested, and charged, it, you know, it takes time. But in 2016, he had a Senate hearing. And he explained exactly how all of this was happening. 
And that, that expose is called Trafficked in America. And anybody can see it for free on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so, but for some reason, the steps weren't taken to deal with the incentive structures or deal with the, I mean, yeah. So what 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 happened? I mean, this is this is Rob Portman. He was he was running the permanent committee on s- investigations at the time. Subcommittee, pardon me. Um, you know, presumably there should be some action after a PSI investigation reveals all this. So so what happened? Do do you know what happened then? Well, so they were putting in like the background checks of household members, but then when this administration took over, they removed all those policies they changed the policies so they put in field guidance to no longer require background checks on household members so that means you could have and we saw cases where you had more than one person living at an address and each of those people were sponsoring children well that doesn't make sense that sounds like a heavy red flag to me yes it should be a red flag and then when a child right, is going to a person they don't know, red flag, right? When a sponsor is sponsoring children at two different addresses, that should be a red flag, right? If you have 40 children that have all been released to one apartment complex, well, that should be a red flag. So we found a a block in Austin, Texas. It had four apartment buildings, and over 100 children had been released. Although conceivably, this could be just, you know, a community of migrants, right? Like a community of illegal immigrants or something like that. I mean, it's possible, but not probable because in this particular instance, we had a person who was sponsoring in one apartment building a child at our site and sponsoring in another apartment building a different child. So if somebody is sponsoring at two different addresses, that's fraud. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what has been the reaction to you going public with these disclosures? Well, some people um, believe it's a conspiracy theory. They think that there's no such thing as child trafficking, that immigrant children are not being trafficked. They, I'm unclear as to why somebody would think that. Um, then there are people who obviously care deeply about the children, not just here, but also in home country. And they're trying to determine, well, what can we do now? So fortunately, there are people who are trying to say, okay, what can we do to rescue the children? What can we do to find out who's, who's involved in all of this? And what laws can we change? So it, it really runs the spectrum. And so it's, I think the thing, Jan, it's a hard subject to look into. It's, um, at times I wish I never knew this happened. Now, if I had to do it all over again in order to stand up for the children, I would. And I wish I never knew these things. I wish I never knew that somebody could do these horrible things to a small child. You know, one of my case managers, I'll never forget, she comes... She comes to me one day, and she's got tears, and she said, Tara, Tara, I just don't understand how somebody could do this to the children. And I'm like, what happened? You know, I tried to, you know, to to help the people around me as I myself was in crisis. And um, 
She said, Tara, the little boy whose case I worked on today, he's only eight years old. He was prostituted the entire way across Mexico. He's in diapers now because he can't control his bowels. This is the level of evil. This is just what happens to them on the journey. What's going to happen to them here? This is not the American dream. And again, it's a very difficult thing to accept that there are people who view children as assets. They're trying to accumulate assets to earn residual income off of the children. It's unthinkable, but this is how they think. It's about making money. They don't care about these children. What do you see, and I'm sure you've talked to people about this, as sort of you know, immediate, rem- what, are the, what are the immediate things that you think could be done to remedy this, even in part? Sure. First thing, simple thing, is turn the data over to the inspector general community. There are data analysts in the inspector general community who, just like that, could see the hotspots. They could cross-check the data with criminal records. They could see who are the bad actors. That would be quick. It would be immediate. They could immediately rescue children. They could also prosecute criminals. They would be able to see who are these high-level criminal actors who we have on the transnational organized crime watch list who are attempting to get children. We need to go get them now. We can't have these people running operations inside the United States. That's absolutely unacceptable. So that's a quick fix right away. The other thing is they could stop release of children and change the rules by which we're playing this game. They can no longer release children without background checks. That makes no sense. Why are they not DNA testing? There is no child in the United States that today, here in Memphis, Tennessee, if a child was found on their own, that we would just give the child to anyone. No, we would want to make sure. What is the relationship with the child? How do you know them? We would want to make sure that they can care for their needs. So these are two simple things that could be done. Stop and change the rules, right? And then turn the data over to the inspector general community. They could find kids and prosecute criminals quickly. Tara, you know, as we've been talking, um, maybe I want to – I'll share this. This is a bit of a light thought. As, as we're discussing – have you ever seen the film The Incredibles? I did a long time ago, yes. Yeah, so, you know, remember Mr. Incredible, he's kind of given this bureaucratic job. I think it's at an insurance company. But, you know, he's Mr. Incredible. He has to – he can't just, you know, do his usual job. So he's basically, like, educating – all the people that are coming in, who he's, I guess, the case manager, whatever you call it, about how to get, actually get their claims processed properly because the system is set up to prevent that from happening. Wow. Right? Anyway, just remind, when, I, when I'm talking to you, I'm remembering <laughs> <laughs> these scenes. And, of course, his manager is really unhappy with him for doing that. And there's, you know, sort of humor ensues and everything. But in all seriousness, it feels like an unbelievable, and we call it a blessing or providence or or just serendipity that you ended up in this situation because you were able to help a whole bunch of people try to make a difference in a seemingly hopeless situation. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
has anyone said this to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, some people have tried to say, oh, wow, you know, you get on stage with other whistleblowers and everybody wants to say you're a hero. Um, I don't see myself like that. I, I see myself as a person who is looking at a very desperate situation of a child and just saying, I'm going to be the person to stand in the gap. To me, that just seems like what any reasonable person would want to do. If you've looked into the little face of a child, you know, if you've heard a child screaming for their parent, you just want to help. So I would think anybody would want to do this. Well, Tara Rodas, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you. Well, Jan, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to tell the story. And thank you for highlighting what we now know is government-sponsored, taxpayer-funded child trafficking. We reached out to Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services did not immediately respond to our request for comment. Thank you all for joining Tara Rodas and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm-hmm.